Proverbs 3, it says, My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands, for they will bring you many days a full life and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and high regard with God and with people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, or the CSB says, know him. And he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine or grape juice. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves just as the father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Would you join me in praying? Father, I would be removed not to confess the many temptations there are in any time we stand before the people of God to preach your word. In us all, I think, especially in me, I think there's a temptation to want to impress your people rather than to serve them. There's a temptation to want to be seen in a certain way as opposed to help others see you in the right way in which you only deserve. Lord, I stand here needing your help. I stand here needing, being needy as a child, eager to simply do the task that you've called me to do, but to do it in such a way that it pleases you. So, Father, I ask that I would increase and that you would decrease. Father, what you need, what we need, and what, what your people need, Father, is to hear from you and not from a man. I count it a privilege that you use men to communicate your truths, but I pray that you would guard me from error. Guard me from communicating anything that would not fall in line with your words. Let people leave here today knowing with full assurance, Lord, that what they heard in this message can be found in your revealed word. Father, would your spirit do what it's already, what he's already been doing? Move in this place, move in our hearts, Lord. It's all, it, it brings us to all to the realization, Lord, that your spirit can uh, be ministering to each and every one of us at the very same time. You know what we need, and so we ask that from you, Father. Would you provide us with bread, milk, meat that would nourish our souls and help us to remain faithful to you? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today we find ourselves in the book of Proverbs, which is categorically uh, known as uh, wisdom literature. Um, you see, often Proverbs, I think, are overlooked in the pulpit because of varying misconceptions about the book of Proverbs. Uh, some may think of Proverbs merely as uh, general moralisms whose homiletical usage uh, should be limited to do or don't sermons. Others may believe Proverbs to be uh, so self-evident that there really is no point of expounding upon them because the clarity of what the point or the intent of the point being made is already available for you. Um, but I think to interpret them as such limits the scope and the depth of which uh, we find in Proverbs. And so I want to help us today to look at Proverbs quite differently. Uh, Alice McKenzie describes Proverbs as a winged word outliving the fleeting moment. That Proverbs are those things which transcend uh, the originative situation and they serve, um, um, they serve as an ethical spotlight on specific things in our contemporary lives. Think of Proverbs as this, as, yes, an ethical spotlight, but not as a floodlight giving moral absolutes. Proverbs can be risky literature because uh, while it speaks of wisdom, it actually requires wisdom in order to understand it. And so today we find ourselves in chapter three, and I want for a moment to kind of set the stage for us all. 
I want us to, uh, in some ways, exercise our imagination because this particular uh, chapter is written by King Solomon to his son. I want us to imagine for a moment uh, that you are sitting with your father, a good father, one that is by no means perfect, but one that has tried every attempt to love you and to care for you and to provide for you and to train you up in the way in which he knows in which you should go. And so uh, as you are preparing to be sent off to college, your father asks you to sit down with him. You go to the nearby Chick-fil-A and in an attempt to remind you of all of the uh, instruction, to remind you of the things that are going to hold you and keep you throughout your initial journey into adulthood, he begins to speak what he hopes will take hold of your life. And he says today, son, I want to talk to you about trusting the Lord. I've tagged the text today, help, I've got trust issues. Because we live in a time both of great sorrows, but in a time of great skepticism. I think the synopsis or the point that I want to hone in today is that trust in the right hands will lead us into trusting in the right ways. That trust in the right hands, trust in the right person will lead us into trusting in the right ways. I don't think it's appropriate for me to start addressing the issue of trust without first providing a working definition that'll be up on the screen. We've got to ask the question, what is trust? Trust is the firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. Trust is, in many ways, the foundation of every relationship because it allows you to be vulnerable and open up to the person without having the fear of having to be dispensive uh, or protect yourself. If we're honest, for all of us, the way that trust works is that uh, we all have this internal process about it. This process is often based on our past experiences. That if we've been burned or disappointed or hurt in life, then we decide I'm not going to do this again. We put up these barriers around ourselves to keep us safe. And while this may make rational sense to you and I, what ends up happening is that uh, it leaves us guarded. It leaves us cautious. It leaves us insecure and deficient and really being able to build uh, any type of meaningful relationships that include trust. The irony is that no matter how guarded we are, no matter how much, how many attempts we put in place in order to protect us, the inevitable reality of life is that uh, you're still going to get hurt. You're still going to be disappointed. All of this happens anyway because we live in this fallen and broken world. One professor said to a student uh, who he saw his life Uh, In in this very way, he says to the student, um, I think you're living as though you're trying to survive life. But what I want you to know is nobody ever has. You see, our trust issues, we tend to think that they just magnify themselves or express themselves in a horizontal, but I want you to know that your trust issues with people is is directly um, attributed to your trust issues with God. You see, it shows up in our grumbling and complaining about how things aren't the way that we thought they should be. It can show up in the mere fact of Five minutes after leaving and sitting under God's word and in worshiping with God's people, we spend more time criticizing the sermon and picking apart the things we didn't agree with than actually acknowledging God is dealing with me or God wants to deal with me and what are the takeaways that I need to apply to my life in order so I can be more like Christ. The reality that exposed in our distrust with God is that when we find ourselves in hard situations, We find ourselves in circumstances that we never could have imagined ourselves being in. I think that we get to a place of giving God ultimatums. God, if you don't fix this in this time frame, I've got to take this into my own hands. God, if my marriage after 20 years doesn't look the way that I want it to look, God, I have no choice but to hit the eject button and get a divorce. 
I think the text today provides us some wisdom, though, in how we are to navigate the treacherous terrain of trusting in these two exhortations that I think we get from Solomon. One is that we need to be people who trust in the right person. But not only that, we need to be people who trust in the right way. Solomon begins in verse 1, he says, My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands. Um, I think for the first thing that I want to draw our attention to and that I see in the scripture is that forgetfulness is the enemy of faithfulness. What do I mean by that? Forgetfulness is the enemy of faithfulness. What I mean is that uh, all of us don't have a problem trusting. We just uh, have a problem in trusting in the wrong things. Uh, If we're going to be able to trust in the right person, though, what we're going to have to do is that we're going to have to attack our forgetfulness with faithfulness. I'll tease that out. Uh, You see, when we forget who God is and what God has said to us, oftentimes we tend to uh, lean on our own mental images of God. We tend to attach to God this sense of sameness, that God is like me, that he thinks like me, he's acting like me. And so I presume that in this circumstances, God is only going to tell me what I think or agree with is the way in which it should be handled. But God is not like us. God is otherworldly. God is set apart from us. He is holy. And so therefore, when it comes to trusting him, we can't fit him in the box of our own cognitive reasoning. That says, my son, my son, don't forget my teachings. I think that the problem with forgetfulness is that we think of it as an inconsequential action. We think that it is something harmless. And so because of that, we don't see the underlying dangers that, 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 that lay at hand when we forget who God is and we forget what God has said. But early on in the book of Genesis, we see that forgetfulness led to destruction. Early on, we see that Eve and Adam were given both purpose and uh, pr- God's presence and God's word and were provided with a space in which they could live out all of those realities in real time. And yet because in a moment of vulnerability, Eve forgets that God is good even when he gives restrictions, he allows, she allows a slithery serpent to convince her that God's restrictions weren't meant for her protection and that his intentions were not for her good. And so she believes the slithery serpent more than her God and then invites her husband into that same reality. You see, when we forget who God is, we make ourselves susceptible to demonic activity. But not only that, Deuteronomy 1 through 4, God tells Israel, I've prepared for you this land that I want you to inherit, but, but I want you to keep all of my teachings. I don't want you to add to it. I don't want you to take from it. I want you to be faithful so that when you enter the land, you'll know you, you will experience my presence and my joy. And yet the Maybe 20 verses down the road in uh, verse 23, it says, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Uh, has forbidden you. Not only can we make ourselves susceptible to demonic activity or attacks, but we can make ourselves susceptible to idolatry. But I'll take it one step further. In James 1 through 22, we need a little New Testament reference where James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers of the word, deceiving yourselves, because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently in the perfect law of freedom and preserves it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. Uh, When we forget who God is and what he said, we make ourselves susceptible to um, ongoing spiritual adolescence. Son, keep my teachings. Son, keep my teachings close to you, but We've got to dig a little deeper. What does he mean by hide them in our hearts? I think the misconception, especially in Christian circles that are primarily emphasize intellectual Christianity, is that we think that knowing and belief are the same thing. 
We think that because we have information that can, we can regurgitate and communicate to others that that is a sign of our own spiritual maturity. Uh, what the son, father is telling the son is, I don't want you just to not forget my teachings, but I want you to do something with the teachings that I've given you. Which means that uh, if we find ourselves sitting in this room day, Sunday after Sunday and in Bible study after Bible study and reading commentary after commentary and hanging out with believers over and over again, but yet we never take the time to digest what God has been teaching us and apply it to our lives, we are no more than intellectual fools. God's desire for you is not simply for you to communicate truth, but for you to live truth out. How much are the struggles with sin an indication that we have replaced truth or we have placed truth not in its proper place or category in our lives as something that we should apply to the situation, but simply something that we should simply say amen to? How much are of the ongoing battles, the sin that we find ourselves ensnared in, is the direct result of us having over a series of moment after moment after moment where God is wanting to address that particular issue in our lives, where we have turned a deaf ear to that and act that because we know what God says, that the power is found only in that and not in the application of what he says. Do you fight do you feel fight in your hearts and in your lives when it comes to addressing issues that God has specifically exposed so that you can, I can bring it to him for healing? One of the things that I've realized, I just started a 20-day um, uh, detox. And one of the things, I'm in day six, pray for me, I got to be a vegan for 20 days. But one of the things that I noticed that in, in any time that you start to take your health seriously and you begin to provide your body with the, necess the necessary nutrients and herbs and things that are, help your body heal itself, one thing you'll find, though, is that, or one thing I found is that sometimes in that process of inward healing, God moves to the surface or we, you find your body moving to the surface, impurities and things that make it seem like you're not really getting any better. You find yourself breaking out with bumps. You find yourself not being able to sleep. You find yourself getting headaches. You find yourself like, yo, this is not fixing me at all. I, I feel sick. But as the days go on and their discipline continues and you continue to treat your body with care, you begin to find that, yes, the God is that, that your body may be purging all of the illness and all the sickness and all the impurities out, but the more you're getting clean internally, the more that the external will catch up with what's happening inside. That it is in him saying, I want your heart to keep your mind. That word, a heart, and you're going to hear it over and over again, it's not emotion only. That in the Hebrew, that word heart is the all-encompassing will and mind and desires. All of that thing put together that God is saying, I want the whole of you. That, 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 that if we are, and here's the thing, brothers, that if we are, and sisters, if we are susceptible to all of these things, if we are susceptible to these dangers, um, even more, if we're susceptible in trusting in the wrong person, that I think we need to be reminded of who we need to trust in. He says, for they will bring you many days of full life and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of the heart. All he's saying to us is, son, uh, uh, let me grab you by the shoulder and say, uh, uh, to, to live this way is going to cost you something. To live this way is going to require a level of diligence and commitment and fidelity to really be able to live the life that God has called you to. And so what I want you to do is put in the work. I think as we think about who to trust, one thing that's important for us is, to, uh, is for us to assess whether God actually is who he says he is. And that may sound weird, like, who am I to assess who God is? Who am I to evaluate God? But I think, I think healthy evaluation of what God has said is good. 
Because if you have a picture in your mind of who God is that he can't handle my questions, he can't be evaluated on the basis of him keeping his word, then what you will remain on, what will remain is you will, you will, consist, uh, you will continue to have this simple-minded God this, this, this God who fits within the box of what your mind can comprehend instead of an all-encompassing, all-unending, uh, 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 a God that is unsearchable in all his ways, you'll, you'll, you'll reduce God to this small, weak God. But the thing is that God allows us to assess him. Assess simply means to evaluate or estimate the nature, ability, or quality of. Who hire somebody without doing a background check? Who marries someone without assessing if this person truly is who they say they are? You know, a person can hide a drug addiction for four to six months in a relationship. God even speaks to Israel and saying in Jeremiah, what fault did your ancestors find in me that they went so far from me? followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. God is not afraid of our evaluating him. We're not questioning who he is. We're not questioning what his word. We're just simply taking an examination of, God, you said this. And so I'm going to cling to your promises in this way to see if you are true or if you are a liar. God's confident enough in his character and his nature to know, I know I'm not a liar. The problem isn't that, but I need to convince you that I'm not a liar. We are in evaluating people and we need to take our simple, but we need to take our simple belief into the depths of sincere, personal questions. As we think about this, uh, one author says this, he said, people with good intentions make promises, but people with good character keep them. When we think about God, we need to, uh, or even as we think about relationships, two things that are important is that we need to uh, one, know that the person that we're in relationship has good intentions for us, but we also know, we need to know that they have good character that follows up with that. Because um, what you believe about the intentions of God and his character ultimately will always influence the way you interact with him and the way that you live your life. God's intention for you, brothers and sisters, is for you to flourish. And that may be hard to believe given what life looks like right now, but God's intention for you is flourishing and not just simply from the fact that God wants your pocketbook to flourish or God wants your health to flourish or God wants your home to flourish, but from the simple fact of what God desires for you, his intention for you is that you would flourish in the reality that God is your God and that he is with you. That is what the Christian life is. It's us growing in our knowledge and understanding that God is who he says he is and God is with us as he sends us on our way. All throughout scripture, we see over and over in God making his intentions clear, him wooing his people by reminding them of the rowdy, of the good things that he has for you. Jeremiah will say, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope in the future. Peter tells us in, 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 in the New Testament that God has provided everything for us in life and godliness. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The mere fact that Jesus was sent to die for our sins is the constant revelation to us and reminder that God loved us so much to not expend one resource in rescuing us back to himself. God's intentions are similar to the bungee cable that you attach when you're going bungee jumping. That his intentions are the entering into relationship and that cord may seem in the moment very close. But I'll tell you one thing, that as you go through life and you jump off into different valleys and into different, off of different cliffs just by being a human being, what you'll find is that bungee cord begins to extend and it may feel like God is getting further and further and further away. But God's character, though, is the harness that girds us up that when we find ourselves falling and not knowing all of what life is going to bring, we'll find ourselves at the very bottom of whatever that is that God is still there holding us up. And not only that, when God, when he hit that bottom, it repels back up and God begins to draw us back to himself. 
Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, and then you will find favor and high regard with God and his people. Uh, in so much as it is a command to embody steadfast love and faithfulness, it is a reminder to you and I of who God has been for us. When you see two attributes of God connected to one another, that's intentional in Scripture. That he could have just said God has steadfast love, or he could have just said that God is faithful. But he combines them together so that we may understand that all of God's attributes work together. That he cannot deny himself of being faithful without communicating to us that he is both steadfast and enduring in his love. Any more that he can say that God is both just and merciful at the same time. That Tozer will say that all that God does agrees with all that God is. And being and doing are one with him. Steadfast love, that word there, brothers and sisters, is that word for hes or hesed. It is not merely an emotion, but it is a feeling or emotion or feeling, but it involves action on behalf of someone who is in need. It was Hesed that led Jesus to the cross to die for our sins. It was Hesed that in uh, Psalm 86, 5, uh, the psalmist describes the Lord as a, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. It was said that when Jacob found himself fearful of trusting God to go back to his family, whom he had done dirty, to go back to Esau and go back to that land to have to deal with his past sins, that Jacob prayed a prayer, God, give me favor with my brother. God, I'm fearful that what you're calling me to do in addressing my past sins, I'm fearful that what I'll receive back from my brother is punitive justice as opposed to mercy. In a chapter down from that verse, you see that as Jacob approaches Esau, as he had sent team after team, let him know, I got riches for you, bro. I, 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 I'm trying to repay you for all that I've taken. Yo, take the camel, take the cows, take all these things. He says Esau, the scripture said Esau saw him and ran to him and embraced him. That, it, that God's steadfast love can go before us. It goes into situations that are beyond our control, that are beyond our awareness, and God is able to maneuver and navigate and form and shape the heart in order to provide us with grace rather than what we truly deserve. But it's not even just that. It's not limited to perfect circumstances. Joseph found himself in the pit of despair. He finds himself in the prison cell because his brothers had turned their back on him and had betrayed him. And now Joseph is in this cell. And even in that particular environment, God gives favor to the war. God gives him favor to change the heart of the warden and exalt him to a place of power. That that is God's steadfast love for us. That it pursues us even when our backs are turned from him. But he doesn't stop there. He says that God is faithful as well. Uh, our sister Trilla Nouvel, she wrote this in an article I thought was just amazing, talking about God's faithfulness. It says that he can never act against his nature and character. That when you're tempted to believe he's absent, the Bible tells us he's near. When your sins and guilt tell you that you are unloved, the Bible tells us that Jesus came out of great love and has removed the stain from your life. When you fail, struggle, and question your worth, the Bible says that your identity as a Christian is found in Christ. That God's faithfulness, faithfulness, y'all, means that there is nothing that you can do or can't do to change anything about God's affections for you. I don't know about you, but I've tried. I've tried God a few times. I've tried to say, God, my life isn't the way that I thought it should be. And so I've tried to walk away from God or tell God I'm not going to do this, God. I asked you for that and you didn't give it to me, so I'm going to pout right now. And I'm just not, I'm not doing it, God. Am I the only one in here today? I've, I've, I've turned away from getting in my word. I, I wish I could say that when my mom passed, that the first thing I wanted to do was get in the Bible. But honestly, I was tempted more to not go to the Bible, but to get into the liquor. I was tempted more to run after something that could please me in a moment than actually trust that God was going to sustain me and keep me in a really real way. I, I wish we had some real folks in here. Am I the only one in here today? 
Uh, uh, I, I know being a pastor in this church, some of us have been tempted to hit that joint a couple times. I know that some of us have been tempted to ease the pain of life by going to that guy and going to that girl and sleeping, them, think, sleeping with them and thinking that in a moment of time that that would ease and solve our problems. See, that's, that's the problem with the church is that when we start talking real, we get uncomfortable. When we start really addressing the realities of our lives, the reason why God gives us stories of the ugliness in people's lives is so that we can identify with them. You think David wanted his business to be in the streets for all of eternity? I wouldn't be honest to say that there have been times in the last few months where I wish God would just say, when I wish it all could just be over. But it's in those moments where you find God. It's in those moments where you identify with what David said in Psalm 39, where he says, where can I run from your presence? God, I've tried. I've tried. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to Sheol, you're there. If I go to this part of the earth or that part of the earth, you're still there. If I find myself in darkness, find that your light still is there. God's faithfulness acts as, it acts as gravity for our faith. It, it somehow always pulls us back to the reality of that there's no feeling that can convince us that God is still not present and committed to me even in my worst moments. As much as we need to trust in the right person, we, we more than that, we need to trust in the right way. Scriptures go, off, go into what's familiar to us. Anyone who's grown under church, you probably know these verses. It says that, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding in all your ways. Know him or acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. If the first four verses identify for us the who, the next four to five verses will identify the how. We have a few misconceptions when we think about trust. In our culture, in our day, we think that trust is something earned and not something that's given. And here's the problem with that, is that uh, earning trust requires you to keep score. And any time that you're keeping score, there's always going to be a winner and a loser. And the problem with that is that you're keeping score, but you haven't told anybody the rules to the game. You, 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 you've already handcrafted expectations and put together, man, I need you to do this for this long a time. And if you don't do it that way, how can anybody do that? It's an impossible, impossible reality for anyone to be a mind reader other than God. You will never find somebody good enough that works long enough that is consistent enough to keep all of your rules. Everybody falls short. Everybody. There's no relationship that you will ever have where somebody will not meet, your, will meet every one of your expectations. And, and, and the reality, y'all, is that in that, what we're doing is that um, the desire to make people earn trust is really just a selfish act. It really is just something that's me-focused or you-focused. It's, it's living a life as if people are created to serve you rather than for you to serve them. If you are constantly focused on what you want from people, what they need to give you, how they are to meet your expectations, guess what? You've actually turned a blind eye on what God has called you to do, which is to love and serve others. To actually live a life concerned more about the needs of other people than you are about your needs getting met. Relationships and teams are just messy. 
that there will always be challenges and struggles. But the you must earn trust model, it doesn't incentivize a better you. It doesn't offer the benefit of the doubt. And it doesn't even serve anyone else around you. It only serves you. And the question that I would ask you is that, does God treat you that way? When God saved you and made you his own and entrusted you with his name, gave you his Holy Spirit, asked you, commissioned you to represent him, entrusted you with gifts, gave you the promise of his presence, provided a people in which you can live life with, he did all of those things fully knowing that you and I were trifling. He did all of that knowing that you and I would not always represent him well. That you and I would not always walk towards him, but we would walk away from him. Knowing that you and I would not always lead people to him, but would lead people away from him through our actions. Knowing that you and I would be given a gospel the good news, the message of salvation, and would not share it with other people, but would simply keep it to ourselves. God gave us all of that, entrusted all of that to us, fully knowing our limitations and our proclivities. If God can do that for us, how much more should we be able to do that for other people? What the writer and what I believe God wants us to see is that, y'all, trust is really the evidence of our belief. It's evidence to our belief. That if you truly believe in something, then you're going to act upon that belief. I'm looking around right now, and I see everybody is seated in these chairs. What that communicates to me is that every single person in this space, maybe not the kids, because they're into something else right now, but every single person in this space has trust in the reliability of the creator of these chairs to uphold their weight. That means that I don't see anybody kind of like, you know, tilting over or wondering, man, is this chair going to hold me up? No, you have confidence that the chair was made to serve its purpose. When you, we, we're a traveling church, right? So when you get on that plane and you're going from destination A to destination B, ain't none of y'all, at least that I know of, are going to the pilot and asking them for their credentials. Ain't none of y'all asking the flight attendant and saying, hey, I need to see the mechanical checklist today to ensure that y'all did everything and that the plane is actually going to fly the way that it's intended to fly. What do we do? We just sit on down. We may put our blinders on and say, I'm going to take a nap. We may say, hey, 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 uh, a stewardess, can you bring me a drink? We, 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 we get comfortable because we're assured in the reliability that the people who made the plane made it right. That the pilots that are flying the plane are going to fly it the right way. But for some reason, when it comes to God, the person who created all things, the person who has saved us and has proven himself to be true, we have an easier time believing God for our salvation than we have trusting him in the everyday activities of our lives. Uh, uh, when you truly trust in something, you lean your weight on it. Wisdom has taught Solomon that, you know what, I've, I've trusted in a lot of things. Huh. You want to talk about money, I got Arab money. You want to talk about uh, status and power, man, I've been in the rooms with the strongest and most powerful and famous people ever to live. You want to talk about experience of pleasure, man, I've had concubines and the finest wines. Man, I've done it all. But what he says is, no, 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 no. At the bottom of all those things, uh, I, I, I found they can hold me up. I found that they couldn't carry the weight of my life. And so therefore, I found something better, something truer. I found that you can trust in the Lord. I've Trusted in my own logic at times. I've trusted in my own ability even to figure out how, how many of y'all got into circumstances that instead of just bringing that to God, 
You tried to figure yourself, you tried to finesse it and finagle. How can I fix this situation only to get in deeper mud? Trust is not, trusting God, y'all, is not a moment of arrival. It is an ongoing process. Here's the thing. Trusting the Lord is hard. It's hard. You know why it's hard? Because it'll force you out of your comfort zone. It's going to force you into some places and some spaces that you would never go to on your own. I found in in almost 20 years of walking with the Lord that as you trust him, God will, and as you surrender your life to him, God may send you to do some things you never anticipated on doing. God may send you across the globe in order to pursue studies, in order to prepare you away from your family and your friends and your church home to prepare you for the ministry he has at the expense of some of the relationships and desires of being close to the people that you love. I found that God will, when you're trusting God, that he may put you into some uncomfortable situations where everything around you looks as if it's falling apart. Isn't that how God builds trust in us? Will your trust grow if you're just simply sitting in the comfort of your own personal desires in life? No, no, no. God loves you enough not to let you sit in the comfort not to let you sit in your comfort zone. In fact, God will allow your areas of your life to fall apart so that when you get to the bottom, the only person who can take credit for how God has restored you and how God has brought you to the place you are right now is God. Brother and sister, that marriage that feels as though it's on the brink of falling apart. When you said no two people, when they say I do to each other, anticipate, even if we say for better, for worse, you don't know what worse will look like. And so when God allows the worst to come your way, we will be tempted always to say, let me hit the eject button, y'all. This is too much, Lord. And we'll start to, in our own understanding, create narratives that somehow allow us or uh, or permit us to say, oh, no, no, you're justified to walk away. It is in that moment, it is in that place where God will say, I have you right where I want you. Now will you trust me? Because the reality is so much of our time we spend trusting in ourselves and then when it falls apart, we, we just don't have the humility to say, God, I, I give up. I give up, God. Can't do this no more, God. I've tried it my way. I've done it the best that I can. Unless you intervene, unless you fix this, it's a wrap. There's a reason he tells us to do this with our whole heart. Because the only way that God can get the whole heart is if he allows the whole gamut of what life can offer to bring us to the point in which we hit our knees and say, God, I'm going to trust you even in this. God, I'm going to trust you when it's hard. God, I'm going to trust you when I can't see how this is going to get any better. That is God's means that he wants all of us It will require, require much of us. It will require perseverance. And the thing that I want us to be careful of, the thing is that I want us to be careful of is that don't confuse the difficulty of your life with the absence, with God's absence in the midst of your greatest troubles. If we rely on our own understanding, we will only see what we're seeing with our eyes or what we experience with our senses. We'll only see it through the lens of pain. And we'll never see it through the lens of purpose. I gotta, we're running out of time. We got a trunk or treat, so I'm gonna speed through this last part. As God puts you into uncomfortable spaces, 
Do you believe that that's the safest place for you to be? I've been in some comfortable places. I've learned, though, that I can be comfortable enjoying the life that I think I deserve and yet be completely unaware of the presence of God or the favor of God on where I find myself. To me, it's safer to be in a dangerous place but to have God than to be in a safe place and not have God. In all your ways, he says, acknowledge you, acknowledge him. Um, we, we were talking about this in our pastor's retreat, and uh, statistics say that the average adult ha- makes 35,000 decisions a day. Think about that, 35,000 decisions a day. And depending on your occupation or your responsibilities, that number only increases. And so if you think of the opportunity that God provides for us, 35,000 opportunities to acknowledge God, but also to know God intimately. How much of our lives do we spend making decisions with God not having no involvement at all? I'm going to conclude with this. He says one final word. He tells us that if we acknowledge him, that God can make our path straight. I've heard it said that God can make straight paths out of crooked lines. And that reality is so true because we can spend so much of our time trying to understand, God, what is my specific purpose? God, what is it exactly that you want me to do? And that we can ignore the clear, basic instructions in Scripture about how God wants us to live, chasing after a specific calling or a specific purpose in our life. And the reality is, in the same way that God places Adam and Eve in the garden, and he tells them, look, I've given you all of the trees in the garden, uh, uh, but just don't eat at this particular tree. God gives us freedom to make choices uh, on the basis of what he's revealed to us in his word. And the good news for you and I is that even when we find ourselves off of track, even when we venture down the road and maybe find ourselves in situations and circumstances that we never thought we would be in, that doesn't mean that God has lost control. I told you all a while back that we're a Waze family. And the thing that I love about Waze is that, man, when I'm taking trips, sometimes I, you know, I put my headphones in and I listen to a good podcast or listen to some good music. And there are times where the voice of, of, the voice of Waze or whoever that person is talking is quieter than the music or the things that are distracting me. So I'll be driving and I'll be cruising, and next thing I know, I'm about 15 miles away from the turn that Waze had told me to take. And so the first thing that I do after I put the destination in the map, first thing I do is look at the map and say, where am I going? And what Waze has is this thing called rerouting. So what Waze will do is that after you've missed a turn, after you've driven in the wrong direction, it will begin to reroute you so that you arrive at the intended destination right on time. You see, what's good news about that is that God has the ability to reroute your life. God has the ability for the woman who sought off trying to live faithful for God or the guy that was seeking to live faithful for God but now finds themselves as a single mother or a single father and questioning, God, I've ruined my life. God has the ability to reroute your life to get you to the destination that he intends. For the person who has gone to seminary and said, God, you've called me to be a minister. You've called me to be a missionary, and I've gone to seminary, but now I find myself having no place or platform to use the equipping and the knowledge that you've given me, and now I'm working at Target and hustling on the side driving Uber. God says that, no, just because you find yourself there doesn't mean I don't have the ability to reroute you to get you to the destination that I had in mind. The good news about God is that God says that as we acknowledge him in all our ways, he will make our path straight. God's work in our lives is not thwarted just because we may make a poor decision or two. That doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. That doesn't mean there won't be hardship. But what it means is that God is more sovereign than your ability to make wise decisions. I want us to leave with the question of
Do I believe that trusting God leads me into greater rest? Do I believe that trusting God leads me into greater rest? Because if you're able to lean on God, if you're able to trust in his ways, even when they go against your ways, then what you'll find is that when I lay my head down to sleep, I know that when I wake up, God is still in control. Jesus was the perfect example of trusting God all the way to the end of his life. That he surrendered his will even when he was in that garden and said, God, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And yet he still took step after step after step to the cross. And when he breathed his last breath, when he said that it was finished, he provided with us this realization that the outcome that God intends and has is as certain as a promise that your life and my life can be trusted in the hands of God even to the point of our very last breath. Jesus has provided that for you and for I and all he, invite, all he asks of us today, for those that may not even be a believer, haven't placed their trust in God, he invites you into the space of, uh, of, of hearing this day that you can come to me and you can trust me and that your life is in the safest hands that it could possibly be. If that is you, feel free, hang out with us at Trunk or Treat, come up to the front after service. We'd love to talk with you more about that. But I want to pray for us. Father, we thank you that as we trust you, Father, we grow into deeper and deeper depths of understanding about who you are. We thank you that the fear of trusting you, Lord, is really just a means of our own self-preservation. That we somehow think that we have better control of our lives than you do. And that's a lie. My prayer today is that we would examine the areas of our life that we've just been holding tightly and clenching, clenching, clenching closely to, Lord, and that we would find ourselves, if not fully able to, Lord, but just to even relinquish one or two fingers today, that we would allow you to take or that we would be willing to surrender and give back to you the ugly areas of our life, knowing that, Father, your hands are the safest hands that we could be in. Lord, I pray that your spirit would deposit and impress upon us a life of trust, a life that models and looks and, and depends upon you fully, not bracing for the possibility of you failing us, Lord, but fully aware that, God, your plans will be accomplished and your purposes will be accomplished. We thank you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.